<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare. And I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Out of Patience. This is Matt. I got a good show for you today. My old friend, I don't mean old like old, like just like we've known each other a while, and she's she's super epic. Erin Moriarty Wade is a freelance writer in healthcare. She's a young adult caregiver to her daughter with an autoimmune disease. Her background is an on-air reporter and weekend anchor for several news stations, and she's been reporting on issues in healthcare ever since. Her middle child, Ansley, was diagnosed with a rare condition, took months to figure out. She's doing really well these days. You're going to hear all about that incredible story, but more along the lines of the whole conversation of healthcare communications. Does it work? How does it work? What does it mean? Can healthcare speak person, a common theme on out of patients, and life hacks for moms and dads when you go beast mode just to help ensure the welfare of your sick child. It's a really authentic conversation today, folks. Enjoy. Erin, welcome to Out of Patience. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a long time. You and I go back a while, don't we? Yeah, I think we're good Twitter buddies. Yeah. I mean, I joined Twitter in like 08. I, I might have been like, I don't know the earliest adopter I knew in healthcare because yeah. I was running stupid cancer. Like, oh, what's this Twitter thing? Let's figure this out. And who knew? That is early. Yeah. I'm not sure actually what year I got on there, but I didn't love it at first. And then I started really getting into it when I sort of found the healthcare community. And all of a sudden it like hit me that this was an amazing place to be. Well, I want to start there. I don't get to talk to a lot of, you know, weekend anchor, on-air reporter, journalist people on this show, whether it's former or current. <laughs> so you have another a, lifetime ago. Yeah, but you have this incredible backstory perspective on communications, and which, by the way, it's what you studied. So you're one of those rare people that did what you went to college for. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So I want to learn more about what it was like to get into journalism. And I mean, I've done live TV. I can't stand it. But to be an anchor, that, that's a lot of work, right? Yeah, it was. That was a tough gig. And the interesting part about that was it was a very small market. So we did everything. We carried our own cameras. We shot our own stories. We edited our own video. It was It's called One Man Band. And it was a pretty intense uh, experience, but it was a lot of fun and learned a lot and and then went back to being a newspaper reporter after a few years. So we're talking today on the show, and you're used to interviewing people like me, not being interviewed by people like me, channeling that inner 
sort of weekend anchor, there's an incredible TikTok channel of a, an anchor, a woman who holds like this fake microphone outside her kid's bedroom when he's crying and screaming. And she's like, reporting oh. live right now. <laughs> Tyler seems to be having a shit fit. Back to you in the studio. It's Oh my God, that's so funny. Does that happen? You're like, you just feel like you want to like look into a camera that doesn't exist and ask the world to help you. <laughs> Uh, probably, probably many times. I think all parents need, need to like call in for reinforcement sometimes. So what were some of the things that you reported on back then? Pretty much anything that happened anywhere at any time. It could be, you know, a lot of crime and grime. Also some plane crashes, school board meetings, taxes, elections, politics, um, Really everything like with the markets I worked in television, we didn't have a beat or like a, you know, assigned topic to cover. We were just sort of all over the place. Like you never know what could happen. But when I was a newspaper reporter, I covered healthcare. So I was focused on covering hospitals, physicians, pretty much anything that was happening kind of in that space in the city of Atlanta. So we talk about how no one really cares about the sky falling on them until it does. And yet you were kind of working in the healthcare mediaverse and then healthcare kind of landed on you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It was really weird. I mean, I spent probably the first decade writing about healthcare, first as a reporter in Atlanta, um, and then later working for hospitals, pharma, healthcare organizations as a content writer, just as a very healthy person who went to the doctor once a year for a checkup and really had no idea what it was like to face a serious illness personally. Then I sort of got a crash course uh, when our daughter got sick in kindergarten. And I realized, that, you know, writing about something is very different. Interviewing people and writing about something is very different than experiencing it yourself. So I went from, you know, maybe seeing a doctor once a year to being four to five times a week in the children's hospital and all of her different appointments and really getting a really different perspective. Did having that like investigatory DNA inside you come in handy? It probably hurt me a little bit in the beginning because I have that personality, like I keep digging and digging. And when we were on that typical diagnostic odyssey that you hear about with rare diseases, where you go from doctor to doctor, month after month, and nobody knows what the heck is wrong. During that time, I would, you know, spend hours and hours searching, learning, researching. And that probably wasn't the healthiest thing for me. <laughs> but I will say it did come in handy once when we had a pretty big snafu where we couldn't get some medical records from a hospital. And and I really needed them because we, we had moved to New Jersey and I needed these records for our first appointment with a specialist there. And it was, you know, months had gone by and I was being nice and doing everything correctly. And then finally, I just like snapped and put in, you know, went into reporter mode, made the phone calls to the executive offices and said, this, I need this tomorrow. And that was kind of the only time that that really came in handy, I guess. Well, we're going to get to it later in the show about when beast mode mom channels her inner <laughs> career talents to get shit done. One of my I dear like friends. You really know me. Yeah, no, honestly, I do. I, and, and one of my dear friends who hosts a show on the Offscript Health Network, Elora Nanos, has been raising a son with narcolepsy for 18 years. Oh, and wow. But she's a, an attorney, 
like a like a oh. go fuck yourself attorney, and oh, wow. she'll turn on the attorney genes whenever she needs to actually just get things done. She goes full attorney beast mode whenever, That's good. and it comes in really handy to have the skills. Yeah, yeah, good for her. So, is it true that if you're Doctor Googling with a background in journalism, you can kind of filter out some of the crap? I think one thing that helped me was our pediatrician at the time, who's a really very kind and super intelligent, experienced pediatrician. He told me, don't just be searching on Google. Go on if you're going to, because he knew I was going to do this, like go on at least Google Scholar and try to, you know, he gave me some kind of pointers in that direction, which was a little bit helpful, but really it was just sort of a waiting game and process of elimination. And there was not a lot that I could do at that point. So let's get to Ansley. She was your third She's our middle child. She's okay. our, yeah, our second. So let's get to that story because I'm sure it's riddled with what's this and take you seriously and there's something wrong with her and misdiagnosis or were you one of the lucky ones that like kind of sailed through to the, here's what's going on? I think we were probably a little bit of both. We definitely did not sail to a quick diagnosis by any means, but her symptoms were severe enough and noticeable enough that people took notice and took it seriously. There was no, there was never any, oh, it's just you. You're a worried mommy. That was not, not something that happened. So yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. Yeah. So over under overall. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of an, uh, like the symptoms were so pronounced, they had to take it seriously, but at the same time, the symptoms were pretty serious. Yeah. And also just very baffling. It didn't make sense. And, you know, it started her autoimmune disease started with like extreme swelling in her legs and her ankles. And it was very strange, obviously, but we went first to the pediatrician. There was nothing else wrong with her. She was a totally healthy kid. So we kind of, you know, wait and see kind of a thing came back, got worse. Then it started in her hands as well. And then somewhere along the lines, months kind of went by, but she had a we had ultrasound, trying to, you know, we had blood work. We had a lot of basic things done. And then we were taking the kids to Disney for Thanksgiving. And I remember my husband went to give her high five and she couldn't open her hand. And her hand was like kind of like frozen, almost like in like a claw position. So we, of course, both, you know, quietly flipped out in our heads, tried not to overreact. But of course, immediately got back on the phone to the pediatrician in a panic and, you know, more tests, waiting, more doctors. And then the final thing that kind of put everybody into a frenzy was, it was she was taking a bath with her little brother and they loved to like play in the tub and horse around and make a huge mess. And she like stood up and I noticed she had her lymph nodes, her, her inguinal lymph nodes, like by her kind of the line of her underwear were, had become enormous, like just overnight. There were, she had like the size of like tangerines. So I then of course panicked even more. And then we got, um, sent through another round of like infectious disease. Um, and then we were sent for a lymph node biopsy. Cause then of course the next fear was like, maybe she has lymphoma and so yeah, it was a long, long, long process. But I think that's one thing I always remember is it gives me a perspective, a good perspective, I think, is that I so vividly remember my husband and I waiting in the hospital room when she was sent off for the lymph node biopsy surgery. And they were going to tell us that day and they were going to you know, call to the room and say either it was cancer or it's not cancer. 
and it was, you know, I guess, you know, more than anybody, it's, it's terrifying and horrifying, but to get a phone call that no, there's no, there's nothing cancerous there was something, you know, that I'm always grateful for. Like, it, I feel like that day our path was going to go one of two really different ways. So. so was there any one particular conclusive test that eventually wound up happening that was a sort of concrete diagnosis? Well, it's a clinical diagnosis and there's not like a genetic marker or anything specific that they can say, you have this. It's more of a physician looking at like all of your symptoms, your blood work, you know, your over, like an overall picture of what's going on with you. So that was what we eventually got. But what was interesting and, you know, I felt very lucky because I had the healthcare background. We had excellent insurance. My husband works not in healthcare, but he works for a pharmaceutical company and kind of business innovation. So we had really the very good circumstances, but we still face these crazy barriers. And I think how other families facing these barriers with more challenging circumstances must have been, you know, incredibly overwhelmed and lost. And the example that comes to mind is we were told that, you know, so if it wasn't lymphoma, thank God, then we needed to see a rheumatologist. And to get into a pediatric rheumatologist was going to be several months. And so the best way to do that, they said, was to catch one while we were in the hospital for the lymph node biopsy surgery. So, Like with a I butterfly thought, net? <laughs> exactly. That was the term, catch one. And, and I'm like thinking, God, we live in the ninth largest city in the U.S. We lived in Atlanta. We have a ton of hospitals, a handful of academic medical centers, and we have to try to catch a rheumatologist. Like, this is strange. So, so yeah, and, and that's something that I, you know, I'm grateful that we had good circumstances, but I'm super aware that even with good circumstances, that time of diagnosis and getting access to treatment is full of all different kinds of obstacles. I would have contracted Wiley Coyote. <laughs> If, you know, Acme makes a lot of great products these days to capture people, I hear. Well, so the cool thing is this was, you know, five, six years ago now. But this past year, I got to work on a really great project with CARA. It's the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance. And I've been working on this physician parent work group. And it's, you know, kind of an advocacy project that brings together physicians and families and tries to like really bring the patient and family voice into research. And it's been amazing. But one of the really cool things we did was a barriers to care survey. So we actually created a survey to try to learn what families face, like when they're trying to get access to care for this certain autoimmune disease, what do they face and how can we make it better? And so it was, it was kind of full circle, I think, for me in that way. Who knew that actually having parents talk to the doctors would help the situation? <laughs> exactly. It's so bizarre because I, I talk about it this way, and you're going to nod your head on the radio here, but, you know, healthcare is kind of a supply-only economy. We don't kind of pre-research getting in there for all the wrong yeah. reasons, and you're at the mercy of a system, but, like, at the end of the day, you're not even the end user. Your daughter's not the end user. The doctor's the end user. So mm -hmm. how do you make autonomous decisions when you're not even able to talk to the other end user, which is the doctor, right? Yeah, it's very, it's definitely very convoluted and you feel sometimes very trapped. Yeah. A toast to healthcare communications. 
Yes. Cheers. Yeah. I'm really excited that you had the opportunity to help be a part of this work group. It, it sounds obviously very necessary. Were there any like immediate aha moments? Like how do we not do this before? Or, or was this currently already like fermenting in some way? So the absolutely wonderful pediatric rheumatologist at Hackensack University, Dr. Suzanne Lee, who is really the one that saved Ansley's childhood. She was on it and she asked if I would like to be a part of it. And of course I was thrilled and said yes. So that was kind of how that happened. But I think they've been doing this for years. They're very, Kara's extremely progressive about doing that kind of work with families and physicians together. We'll be right back after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're back with Aaron Moriarty-Wade. I think it's fair to let the listeners know that Ashley is doing fantastic these days, correct? Yeah, she's doing pretty well. She she still has some joint pain and she has some skin issues as well um, from her autoimmune disease. It's a form of scleroderma, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that. But she does horseback riding a couple times a week and she's able to, she does ice skating and she goes to school and she got her COVID vaccine and then found out that she her body did produce antibodies, which we were super excited about because with the chemotherapies and immunosuppressants, um, a lot of people, their bodies don't produce antibodies after getting the vaccine, but she did. So win-win there. <laughs> Definitely. And, and honestly, you know, I've done a lot of work, you know this already, when little kids are subject to all these medical things, it's a managed situation that they thrive through adolescence and puberty and young adulthood. And I'm sure this is like you're setting up the stage for this understanding that this is something that has to be observed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to read a quote from your article, Surviving Then Thriving, from 2018. I love this. It's poetry. You said, this isn't the childhood we envisioned for our daughter, but then I try to remember the quote, 
Life isn't about waiting for the storms to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Was that yours or you stole it? Oh, no, no. I, that's a famous quote. I okay. Just, yeah, it's a quote I read somewhere. It just, it hit me that night because she was, she was out there dancing with her dad and she was like tearing it up in her little red cowboy boots, even though she physically felt pretty, pretty shitty. God, you got to love kids, right? They are the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> so yes. let's get into what you're doing these days because you are now an informed writer. You've been through the ringer. And has it changed your perspective? I'm sure it has, but to what extent? And what are you most passionate about writing these days? Or who are you working with? Yeah, um, so the past two and a half years, I've been working as a content specialist at My Tomorrows, and it's a company that helps patients and physicians um, find and access clinical trials and other treatment options like expanded access programs. And it's it's been a really great experience for me. One of kind of the highlights of my work there is interviewing patients and physicians and understanding the patient's journey, the family's journey, what they went through. And that's something that I professionally that's what I do, but also personally, I can relate to because I, I do um, personally know what that's like. Have you ever read the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Oh no, I don't think. All right, it, it, it's irrespective, but there's a there's a like a it takes place in the future or some kind of weird other alien universe. But there uh -huh. there's some kind of like species that you stick inside your ear. And it lets you hear other languages in your native language called a babblefish. Oh, cool. So I feel like I use the metaphor all the time. Like you're kind of a human babblefish that's <laughs> translating the absolute ridiculous acronym jargon of science and research to average human beings. Is that fair? Yeah, maybe on some levels. And I think also just being able to bring the stories to life of what patients and families go through, I think is also important. And I think one of the things I've learned that's been really interesting is how, you know, a lot of times people don't know that there are other options that they can look for. And just, there's been quite a few patients that I've interviewed that have said this, but the one that comes to mind most recently, a family that we that I interviewed this fall and the mother had been diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer and just told, you know, sorry, we can't really do much, but here's a referral for palliative care and we'll maybe try chemo, but, you know, not, nothing we can do. But the interesting part is her husband is a physician, her daughter is a physician, her son is also a physician. And they all said, wait a minute, like, let's go look for clinical trials. Let's go see what is happening in research, what else is out there. And so my tomorrows was able to help them look for treatment options and ultimately help them access something. And two years later, like their mom is feeling really good. She's doing yoga. Like it's not what you would have expected. But it's also, you know, it's a little bittersweet because it's sort of this like inherent privilege rolled in there of, well, they knew to ask and they knew to keep looking because they were doctors. And, you know, what about all the other people that have no idea that they that that's even a choice or how to go about it or how to look for it or how to access it? Yeah, I've, I've talked about the chutzpah factor on the show forever that not, a, not everyone's born with moxie and not everyone is a doctor. And sometimes it's just good and bad luck. But I feel like 
healthcare communications or marketing communications can be jargoned by agencies. It could be skewed by going to like cdc.gov or whatever. But what you're doing is a service, it's an intervention. It's a navigational way to mm-hmm. humanize the fact that no one wants to be there, yeah. but give them confidence, hope, maybe some moxie, maybe some chutzpah, because <laughs> you're able to talk to them like people, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the cool thing about our model is that we use patient navigators. So we have people who they have a medical background, like the our chief medical patient navigator was a former physician and you know, a lot of, they all have training and they speak eight different languages and they know how to like help people walk through this process and explain things in a way that is patient friendly and easy to understand. And so that's, that's a really important part of it too. So let's go into the mom and dad beast mode life hacks, right? <laughs> Something we have, a, I mean, I'm Gen X. I think you're in the same census checkbox as me more yeah, or less. And yeah a lot of the uh, listeners are of our age and we're dealing with our parents and our kids. And if we get sick or our kids, it's, gonna, it's like with the sandwiched universe <laughs> out there, yeah. you know, raising kids is hard enough when they're not going through all sorts of crap. Were there any specific tips, tricks, life hacks, stress relief, relationship mitigations that you and your husband found highly valuable, but unexpected that you could share with people listening? Oh, gosh. I think one of the things for us that was helpful was that our, so our younger son was too little to really know what was going on, but our older son was just an absolute trooper. And he would, you know, we had to do like once a week, I had to give Ansley a shot of methotrexate that would, wasn't fun, obviously, but that would also make her really sick. And so he would he would come and sit with her and he would find something funny on YouTube and he would bring her candy and like it, I think having that like sort of family support when someone's sick is really important like even if you know a kid's technically too young to really be carrying that responsibility if they can I think it's really helpful and I, it's kind of amazing to me how kids just in that situation they're like they know how to kind of support and reach out to each other like so the year first grade this was kindergarten when he was like that's like but then first grade we were living in new jersey and one of her little classmates was diagnosed with cancer it was lymphoma actually and it was obviously you know horrendous but he was also terrified of needles and his mom you know when i reached out to her she said that was an issue and so um so Ansley had the idea, like, I'm going to make a video, you know, I'm going to show him, like, I do my shots and I do my IV. And so over the next, like, few weeks or whatever it was, she made, like, one of, you know, this, here, mommy's going to give me my shot. It's not that bad. And then we were also in a phase of doing a IV. We would start at the hospital and then we would bring it home and have, like, home infusion. And so she had two days at home doing that. And she made another video of herself showing him, you know, and like giving him some tips and like, it makes a yucky taste in your mouth. So make sure your mom gives you lots of candy, (laughs) sour patch kids and lollipops. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it was really sweet. And like at the time moving to me as a mom to see that, like she was feeling pretty shitty, but she was going to do this to help her little, her classmate. So it was kind of cool. That's extraordinary. That's really extraordinary. All right, so you have three kids. I have twins. Do your kids get along? <laughs> Sometimes. We have a uh, boy-girl-boy, so it's kind of a 
a funny um, dynamic. But yeah, our older two are, are really close. Our son and Ansley, they're only three years apart and they're, they're, they're pretty close. So we're grateful for that. Yeah, my twins are crossing toward 12, which we know that's kind of the oh. weird stuff is beginning to start. Oh and uh, I love just comparing notes with other parents whose kids are is either on the way. Is that sixth grade for them or are they sixth grade? They're in sixth. They're, they're, uh, they're finishing up sixth. Okay, um, same as Ansley. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a tough year. You go from being like little kid romper room in elementary school to all of a sudden the tween teen stage. Yeah, and, and honestly... This is a time I'm mean, this show will air in a couple of weeks from taping, which is what are we early March now? But the relevancy is that, you know, COVID impacted so many kids behaviorally because they kind of skipped a year and a half of school. But yeah. my kids had, were twins and they kind of like weren't as impacted by that developmental they were together. challenge. They were together. But yeah, I mean, it, they went from like fourth grade to sixth grade <laughs> and like. Yeah, and they're still kind of like, you know, what's all this? What's what's middle school? Meanwhile, when we were in middle school, we're like, we're still in like first grade. Like <laughs> middle school today is like high school, like back then. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's yeah, it's very different. Yeah, that's a tough age. Uh, I want to wrap because I had a great quote, and I think this is kind of a summer executive of everything we stand for. It's like patient experience begins long before you meet the doctor. But I, I who invented the term patient experience? It's like. It's just like, <laughs> what agency put those words together? It's like, it's the shit happens stuff, right? But but you're living yeah. in the space, you were in that space, you've learned this space. What, what does that mean, patient experience? Well, I think it's about everything that that patient goes through. Like, it's not just like the hour that they're in the doctor's office or the day that they're in the hospital infusion center. It's like everything that leads up to it. It's the appointment. It's like, do you know how much things are going to cost when you get there? Do you have the money to pay for it? Do you have a way to get there? Do you have childcare for the hours and hours that you're going to be gone? It's it's like that whole overall like picture of what a person goes through. Yeah. And then the whole, it ain't over when it's over. Yeah. No. Cause then the next day, I mean, when Ansley does her IV the next day, she's homesick. You know, it's like one day is we pull her out of school early. We go to the children's hospital. I set up shop work in the infusion center. And then the next day she's doesn't feel well and she stays home. Is this just ongoing or is there a bit of an end game for Ansley? They'd hoped that she would be in remission by now, actually, but she's not, but she's, you know, it's managed and she's, you know, she's very, for the most part, able to do what she wants and needs to do. So, Well, she's got a baller mom and a baller dad. <laughs> and also, it's good that you had this timing because, I don't know if you know this, but it's Autoimmune Awareness Month. Ah. So got to give a shout out for that and all the other families dealing with autoimmune disease. That is true. And it was Rare Disease Day like two weeks before this taping. So, Yeah, that's right. true. That's true. That was we got to call one. them out when they're out and it really matters. All right, Aaron Moriarty Wade, you didn't get to channel your inner news anchor voice. I'll forgive you for this one, but I expect <laughs> it on the next time you're on the show. Okay, I'll, I'll dig up some old uh, reels for you. Yeah, freelance writer who's writing <laughs> focused on topics in healthcare. Uh, healthcare landed on her and her family. As a reporter, she covered everything from AIDS, Southeast Asia hospital competition in Atlanta. Uh, she does writing for healthcare organizations and is currently working for the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance. Lots of acronyms, C-A-R-R-A. -R -R -A. We'll put a link in the episode description. 
Anything else, you are on Twitter at, what is it, E. Moriarty Wade. We'll put that link in the description as well. What do you tweet about? Mostly healthcare and sometimes my my crazy children and my unruly dog. I'll allow it. Fantastic. (laughs) Erin, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really a pleasure to talk with you and an honor to be on your show. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>